Bonjour. Welcome to the Dexabit Data Diaries. This is your captain speaking. You're listening to the Data Diaries. Data Diaries. So he's got the best voice? Nice. Yes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Data Diaries. Today we're here in Washington, D.C. with the team at the National Museum of African American History and Culture who are experts at crowd control and capacity management here to share their experiences with the world, given this is such a hot topic for many visitor attractions who are grappling with new or reduced capacity constraints in the age of COVID-19. I'm here with Herman Marini, Visitor Services Manager, and Diana Wynn, who's the Assistant Director for Information Technology. A big welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Angie. Excited to be here. The team at uh, the museum are absolute pros at this capacity balancing act. You've had this aspect to the museum's operation since you opened originally a few years back, um, given you've always had to control crowds and demand. How different are things on that front for your team post versus pre-COVID-19? I was only actually with Namak for three months uh, prior to COVID. You know, in that short time, I had an opportunity to observe how visitor flow uh, was happening at the museum and get a feel for how the institution was operating and working. And one of the things during that onboarding period that I learned was the conversation around the importance of balancing safety and satisfaction was even important kind of pre-COVID. NAMAC has had or required time passes, you know, since 2016 in their opening. And the primary driver behind that is there was increased demand. And so to make sure that we're able to manage crowd safety from an overcrowding perspective, um, the time ticketing system was great. A lot of the focus was shifting towards making sure we were utilizing capacity to the best of our abilities. So we had the time ticket passes, that program was running fine, um, and then new initiatives were kind of rolled out to make um, getting a ticket to the museum even more accessible. So one of those programs was the Walk Up Wednesday initiative where Um, Folks could come up to the museum without a pass on Wednesdays in the off-peak season and on a consistent and kind of regular basis be granted access into the museum. And the sentiment at the time was um, if those types of programs continue to go well, that eventually in the future we hope to move to a place where eventually you wouldn't require a pass to get into the mock in being in line with the way that the other Smithsonian's operated at the time. In this post-COVID environment, it's it's very different. Again, with safety and satisfaction staying top of mind, but with safety, having to drastically reduce uh, capacity has definitely impacted how accessible you know the museum has become. A big driver behind the the reasoning for the capacity uh, limits and the volume that we've chosen is directly tied to uh, some of the guidelines, the health and safety guidelines that were laid out. So broadly, you know, Namak and of course, all of the the Smithsonian units are following DC's guidance, the 200 square feet per person, right? Um, And then from that guidance, units kind of had some discretion how, you know, risk averse or how aggressive they wanted to be beyond that point. One of the things that I was, you know, really pleased by was Namak's openness to taking a very conservative approach to the number of visitors we let into the space, right? And I think that that was one of the key things kind of, um, you know, pre-COVID safety was still a primary concern, which is why we had the time passes. But the ultimate goal was to allow as many people in as we could safely fit in, 
versus post-COVID, although we may have had the capacity to allow a few more visitors in um, because it was untested, because we hadn't opened the doors and it was still a theory overall, um, there was a very conservative approach. Um, and then quite frankly, you know, at the time, a lot of these decisions were being made. Um, some of the data around the impacts of COVID-19 um, was also becoming available. And, you know, one of the pride points of Namak as an institution is we attract a very diverse audience um, into the museum space, uh, many of whom it's their first time visiting a museum, right? Um, but we're also seeing in parallel that the COVID-19 virus had had disproportionate impacts on diverse communities across the U.S. Um, and so as we're thinking about our audience and who we're allowing back into the space, um, there was a sense of responsibility to those audience members, you know, and I think that that in so many ways is very different from, I think, a traditional institution that may have a more object-centered approach. Um, this visitor-centered decision-making, you know, factoring in empathy and also taking into consideration um, some of those broader um, social contexts. Herman said something I thought was um, just really um, insightful. And I have to say, I haven't really heard this expression used a lot in other places, but he talked about um, using empathy, you know, as it relates to engaging kind of with visitors. And what sort of what that means for me from an IT perspective is uh, kind of goes back to CRM. And I think of what is in the, in the Dexhibit platform and the other types of data that we um, can and, and will pull into the platform is, you know, what what type of information can I make available to Herman and his team so that they have kind of a complete picture of, of visitors who are ticketed, who are coming to the museum, a complete picture of sort of the um, cultural ecosystem, right, that is Washington, D.C., and so that when, when the visitor services team is in engaging with the public, to either, you know, allow them into the museum or ask them to wait or propose alternatives. They just have this wide range of information available to them to have that conversation. So, and I think just the the focus that Herman and his team has on empathy, I think is, is probably maybe one of the differentiating, you know, features or factors that, that helps make Namak um, so popular um, is, is really being empathetic to what we want the visitor experience to be. Um, and in any way that from a systems perspective that, you know, we can make that information available throughout the museum, but certainly to the visitor services group, I think is really critical to making sure that visitors are having an optimal experience. Deanna, how about on the technology side? I know for many places, there's been a huge need to step up technology-wise to meet the needs of COVID-19. But in your case, the museum was so well prepared in the first place to manage capacity. Have you seen the need for a technology uh, change on your side too? Yes, and yes. I think uh, coming in to the museum in, in April of this year, one of the first um, observations that I made is, is uh, and I'm, I came in post-COVID, but I was well aware that from a ticketing perspective, the museum was pretty far ahead of, of other institutions of its type and how um, ticketing and including walk-up Wednesdays and managing capacity from the demand perspective was managed. I think Namak has done uh, a fantastic job. But what um, you know really became clear as we started to enter or exit kind of this COVID period 
was really to use data uh, and to get more uh, data points actually to um, to use to our advantage to manage capacity on the, uh, I guess you'd say on the supply side. So if demand is understanding how many um, people we anticipate coming into the museum, we wanted to have um, insights um, such as, you know, footfall and um, to go along with ticketing to really understand um, who actually showed up, what were our attrition rates looking like, and then more in a more granular basis, um, what was that visitor journey through the exhibition spaces and through the galleries really like. Um, one other observation that I had, which is a little external to Namak, is um, what Namak had done very well with ticketing um, became adopted sort of across Smithsonian. And I, I saw that all the museums um, recognized a need to more effectively kind of plan and manage, uh, you know, visitor flow. But, but also to be a bit more proactive, and I think Namak is doing a fantastic job with this, at not just managing uh, sort of visitor capacity, but starting to really look more broadly at managing the visitor experience. So, uh, and that, um, you know, really from a technology perspective, it really is looking at what other types of data and other types of insights about visitors can we um, begin to sort of assemble and consolidate and, uh, and perform some analytics on. And, uh, you know, I know maybe later we'll talk a little bit about that. Our focus right now has been on footfall and having that data sort of match up or be consolidated with the ticketing data. We've had some successes there and lots of lessons learned. Um, one of, uh, I think, the chief lessons learned, I would say, uh, around the um, footfall counters and what's in source is, is just making sure that the, that the implementation implementation and the, the placement, you know, of these cameras really are um, reflective of, of visitor flow through the museums. And so there's a bit of trial and error there because you frankly can't quite get it right until you have traffic in the museum to then go back and, and tweak the placement of cameras or really understand what the flow is. So we're learning more about uh, how our visitors travel through the museums, you know, as we go and as we roll in uh, other systems, um, for example, to uh, begin to gather um, insights through Wi-Fi um, access, we'll, we'll learn um, the experiences that we've gotten out of the sensors implementation, I think will help guide and inform, you know, future implementations of kind of visitor capacity management solutions. Mm, and that's fantastic that the Smithsonian has had such a great example in-house to follow on this topic with the need to move so quickly to reopen, especially given they've had to do that at a time with no visitors to practice on, as you mentioned. It's true for often it was uh, Herman and his team, you know, and my team <laughs> kind of trying to simulate, you know, sort of visitor traffic before the, uh, before the museum uh, opened. And now that we are open and have good numbers, uh, it just, it just gives us that much uh, more data, not only to kind of um, tweak and, and refine the system, um, but also just to get more insights into the visitor experience, which is really important to the museum. The museum had started experimenting with walk-ups on certain days of the week and times of the year, 
how do you make that choice between offering walk-up or advanced passes or a hybrid between the two of doing both at the same time? What does that sort of discussion look like internally for you? Well, as you know, the option to offer, you know, advanced passes is kind of heavily influenced by wanting to make sure the visitors who, you know, are fortunate enough to secure a pass have enough time to plan their visit ahead of time, right? Um, What we also know at the same time is managing attrition is a real concern. We'll release passes um, every evening at around 4.30, so right after the museum closes, kind of for the next day. Um, And then we'll also do another release of um, passes the morning of. Um, And the idea there, again, is to just offset what we've we've kind of comfortably known to be our, our standard attrition. Yeah, that's such a good point. Being able to um, do one at, both at the same time to both be able to serve the visitor experience, so that you can have those people who like to plan ahead versus those people who like to show up, and that's giving you the flexibility, by the sounds of it, to manage fluctuating attrition and sort of tip that over as well. We allocate our eleven a.m. opening uh, passes um, and the eleven and twelve o'clock slot, so that we we kind of fill the building up between those hours. Um, and then we drastically reduce the number of passes we make available between the one o'clock and two o'clock hour, just kind of in anticipation that um, the building will be close to its maximum capacity. And those visitors that came in in the morning will just be wrapping up their visit, you know, between one o'clock and two o'clock. And hopefully you see that shift happen of those visitors exiting and then your kind of second wave of visitors entering the space. When we are kind of making that choice to allocate same-day online passes, attrition is normally um, very top of mind for that, right? Um, And so for us at NAMAC, we know uh, our standard attrition is about 40%. For the same-day online pass allocation specifically, you know, because those visitors have a slightly lower attrition, right? Because they're there, they've made the decision either yesterday or the morning of to attend the museum, um, we're really careful about how we allocate those passes. The advanced passes are, are kind of distributed evenly across our time slots across the board. The same day online passes, um, they do follow kind of like a, I think of like a check mark where we start very high with the allocation. And then, you know, as we get closer to the one o'clock to two o'clock mark, um, we offer very little passes during that time slot. Um, And then during the last time slot of the day, which is two o'clock, you know, we try to open it up. Managing the same day online passes helps us to kind of combat that attrition. What goes into that decision, Herman, of what volume to set capacity at for the museum? And then how do you work out how many passes to offer? Um, Is that impacted by dwell time or anything like that for you? Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. So we've worked out, you know, what the maximum capacity is for the museum. Um, and then when you factor in the dwell time of the average visitor, so now we're seeing that that's approximately three hours. Um, in the past, it's, it's been four, but currently our, um, our cafe store isn't open. So based off of the data that we've received, you know, we safely assume the visitors will be here for approximately three hours to two hours in the building. So, you know, we have the schedule of uh, advanced passes, and that's pretty set, but we know things happen, right? I mean, even with this year being the year that COVID happened, so many uh, travel plans were adjusted. Um, and quite frankly, visitors who felt comfortable or safe coming into a museum. Um, and so adjusting 
um, or taking those things into consideration um, when we're allocating same-day online passes um, is a is a very big factor. What are some of the systems that you're using to manage all of this operation? Well, on the ticketing side, we are using um, a cloud-based solution, Etix, for footfall uh, monitoring. We're using SendSource, and SendSource really has two components to it. Uh, there's, you know, kind of it's a cloud and or server-based solution um, that primarily works with uh, of cameras that, you know, you would place around the perimeters of the museum where we have that for entry and exit, um, as well as around key spaces throughout the exhibition space and, and galleries. Um, Sensors also has a, uh, a module or an application called SafeSpace. And SafeSpace, which we are really just starting to use, SafeSpace provides a bit more granularity into things like dwell time and uh, will enable us to set capacity limits at the um, gallery or exhibition space level. Uh, primarily right now, we're using SendSource um, in the aggregate so we can see uh, you know, who's come into the museum, who's there at any given point in terms of number. It's all anonymized data. But how many people have, um, have entered and exited? A solution that we'll be using is, is uh, Altum. And that really requires visitors to enroll in our um, Wi-Fi system. So they'd enroll in Smithsonian Visitor Wi-Fi. And then we'd really be able to um, track their journey through, uh, through the museum. I think that will be important along with the SendSource data again uh, around with the to match up against the ticketing data because it gives us a sense of of a couple of things right one is um, how many people and when do we expect visitors in the museum then we can look a bit of our actuals how many of the ticketed uh, visitors actually um, turned up and then where are they spending time in the museum how we use those insights I think you know, for right now is around capacity management, but I can easily envision, um, envision expanding with how those insights are used to not only um, influence existing visitors, but perhaps to attract new visitors and to enrich, enrich the experience of, of visitors who are, um, who are in the museum. It's amazing, isn't it, for something like capacity, when you dig into it, there's actually lots of different data sources that you have to tap into and in order to get that insight from, I imagine it's a tricky puzzle to stitch everything together in order to get an idea of what's happening out on the floor and, and get that up to your team. Some future capabilities that we are um, considering for um, beyond capacity management. For example, there is an interest in kind of enriching the data that we currently collect around um, customer relationship management, so CRM. We don't have a fully-fledged CRM capability at the moment, and we are interested in, in pursuing that. Uh, there, there are um, many, many different, um, I would say, visitor types or engagement with the, with the public that uh, we really want to explore. So, for example, uh, members, how, um, you know, how many of our members are we converting into visitors or even vice versa? How many visitors ultimately become members? Um, are there other engagement points with the public, for example, even through some of our 
um, digital assets that we may be able to engage, you know, in a way to either convert them into visitors, convert them into members, to um, encourage them to, uh, you know, to, to buy from the museum through either our, our point of sale or through uh, Smithsonian Enterprises um, e-commerce program. Although, as, as Herman said um, previously, our immediate focus is really on managing the capacity of our visitors and the visitor experience for um, for individuals who come to the museum, but we certainly see expanding those, uh, expanding that out and getting insights beyond just uh, members of the public who visit us in person. Herman, you mentioned that uh, for Namak, you're seeing forty percent attrition rate. That sounds slightly um, lower, which is great than what we're seeing in the wider museum space. I think across the sector, around fifty percent of visitors who book a, an advance pass ticket. Um, that is free, don't show up, that attrition rate. Um, and that's, as you mentioned, it has a big impact on on managing capacity because um, we can think that we might be selling out tickets but then experiencing a significant number of no-shows at the door. Um, are there any other ways that you can sort of counteract that or that your team deal with it other than um, uh, dealing with sort of next day or same day passes? It's been a hybrid. So the, the same day online passes is definitely, you know, the most effective method. But kind of as Deanna saying in the when I think about the visitor journey, the pre-visit touch point opportunities definitely include, you know, reminder emails that go out to the visitors. You know, at the moment the the primary messaging in those pre-visit messages are still COVID related, making sure visitors understand what the expectation is around maintaining social distance, wearing your mask when you come to the museum. Um, but they also do serve as a, you know, a great reminder for visitors about their upcoming visit. When we move into a space where we have kind of a more full-fledged CRM, I can definitely envision an opportunity to confirm in those messages, hey, are you still coming tomorrow? Right. Um, and I think that those types of proactive methods also help fight off uh, the attrition rate. And are you having to turn people away at the door who don't have a ticket booked or even somebody who has one booked if you're at capacity? What sort of tactics have you prepared your team with to handle that sort of situation? Yeah, unfortunately, that that is one of the realities that we deal with um, that Namak has, quite frankly, always had to deal with because they've always had time passes. Um, it, there are two parts, two major parts. Um, one is definitely started from a place of empathy, right? When we're training our staff, we do you know, emphasize how difficult it is sometimes to get passes to the museum um, and then also how far some visitors come to actually journey to the museum. And if unfortunately they had, you know, some misinformation or they just, just were not aware that, you know, our institution required passes to make sure that we're sensitive to that. And now uh, transparency is also very important to us. Um, we're very forward about, you know, the reasons that we have limited capacity uh, and that being primarily centered around COVID, right? Around the new safety protocols that are in place. And then after that moment of transparency and empathy is we offer the visitors information around how they can go about um, getting passes. So we inform them about the same day passes that we offer every morning at 11 a.m. We also inform them about the passes that go on sale in the evening, you know, at 4.30 for the next day. 
um, and um, also point them to the, the QR codes that are immediately available um, when you're on site. So if we're having that conversation on the MOX campus, um, the QR codes that redirect you to the online visitors, I mean, the online passes are there and available for the visitor to have immediately, even if they walk away without a pass. But then the third thing, and I think that this is critical as well, is we have empowered our team leads, our VSA leads, to kind of make that decision on issuing a pass to a visitor in real time. Because again, circumstances are different. If there is someone that is local, you know, has the ability to kind of come back tomorrow or come back the next day versus the, the rare occasions that we have where a visitor, you know, has traveled from quite a distance and just so happened to be in time and had the opportunity um, and know that they won't have the opportunity again for a while. We try to be as flexible and as accommodating as possible, just kind of keeping that visitor-centered approach while balancing safety. And so, you know, we, we emphasize the importance of issuing every visitor a pass. It's not just a scenario where we can let you in. We, we're sure to collect the information of all of the visitors on site just for COVID safety reasons in case we have to report back out or get in contact with the visitors who are on site that day. So yes, it's definitely something that um, our frontline team has had to deal with, you know, even pre-COVID. But what we found is when we're transparent about the reasoning why, um, especially the safety-related concerns, visitors are very understanding, you know, and they're thankful for the opportunities to, you know, have access to the same-day passes, you know, that are available in the evenings and then in the morning of. Yeah, that's such an important point that those advanced passes are doing double duty, really, as a contact tracing as well, hey? Yeah, Absolutely. You've got quite a complex site to manage there because you've got this pinch point of sorts that happens early within that uh, visitor experience um, that Diana was talking to. For our listeners who haven't been to the museum yet, when you come in, you actually begin your journey, and Herman, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but you begin it underground. Um, so you go in, in an elevator or down the escalator at a point where you've got the Oprah Winfrey Theatre, you've got entrance to the cafe, you've got the special exhibition gallery, and then the entrance to the beginning of the visitor experience, starting with a history gallery. So in normal times, this is actually a really busy space. And then that goes into a tighter space for the beginning of an exhibit on slavery and freedom. And and I understand it's purposefully designed like that, but I imagine very tricky to manage with the millions of people that you can see in a year. So how do your team manage that spot and, and that nuance in particular? There's definitely the thought of letting the visitors kind of create their own experience, where at the welcome desk, there are some visitors that have very specific artifacts or exhibits that they want to see. And, you know, we can easily direct them there. And then there are the visitors that come and they want to know, just tell me, tell me where to start, where to begin the journey. And the history gallery is always, it's the preferred exhibit, right? You have chronological history from the 1600, the transatlantic slave trade, all the way through and beyond the election of Barack Obama in 2008. So wildly popular exhibit. And as you mentioned, when you start that journey with the transatlantic slave trade, the brilliant exhibition team at Namak is also sure to kind of make that space really tight and enclosed to kind of recreate the experience partly of being transported on a, on a slave vessel. And when you're looking at that in a post-COVID world, there are multiple flags that kind of come up for that, right? A space that's intentionally designed to be kind of compact is a huge area of concern, but you balance that against it being one of the, you know, the most popular attraction at the museum. 
it was a tricky challenge to to think through and work through with you know leaders of the the museum and leaders of the curatorial team as well but some key decisions that helped us kind of manage visitor flow in that area um, was first the decision to modify the exhibition experience. So when you step into the space, it is a combination of museum artifacts that help tell that story, but then there are also a number of videos as well um, that play in the space. And one of the early decisions that was made was to turn off all of the videos within the space. Um, And the idea was that if you made it an audio-only experience, in that specific section, that it would help decrease the dwell time within that space, right? And, and kind of keep visitors moving through at a somewhat consistent pace. And the second um, big thing is, you know, in addition to having the football counters help give us an idea of how many visitors are in our history galleries, we did make the decision to also have visitor services team members there to also manually manage that process. And I say that that's a big decision. Because again, having that empathetic approach towards visitors is important. But when we were retraining our staff, you know, that conversation actually starts with the frontline team members who are there doing the work. So making sure that we are creating a working environment that is safe for them so that they can extend excellent customer service to our visitors. And so making sure we thought through, you know, where that team member would stand, where they would be you know, safe to manage visitor crowd flow, but then also able to keep an eye on and kind of prevent pinch points of crowding from forming was extremely critical in that space. So again, in in that specific exhibit, you have a combination of the footfall counters, the technology that's helping, right? You have the modified exhibition experience that, you know, that's ex, uh, the curatorial team's contribution to helping visitor flow through that space. And you also have the visitor services team member, you know, that has their eyes on monitoring the visitor flow, you know, encouraging visitors to maintain their social distance, encouraging visitors to kind of make sure that they keep their mask on, that that safety information is kind of reiterated within that space. And I'm very happy to report that we've seen really great success with managing that space using the combination of those three things. What are the key insights that you and your your management team and your team out on the floor need to achieve all of these sorts of things and and come up with those ideas and control uh, that capacity? Whether we are implementing kind of the the footfall counters or Wi-Fi insights, you know, or any other uh, technology capability that's going to sort of directly monitor the visitor experience. It's going to be important for, you know, any um, IT director, CIO, IT team to really partner up with the equivalent of a visitor services group the way that we've done with, with Herman and, and walk the floors, walk through the exhibit, see where cameras are going to go, see where you need your access points, really understand that visitor flow so that what you are implementing is, is relevant in, in real time and it, it's not conceptual. And one of the lessons learned that we we got from that really had to do with the placement of of some cameras, which, you know, sort of made sense on a blueprint, but we needed to go in and adjust so that we really were actually seeing and capturing the way visitors may have entered or exited a particular gallery space. So uh, walk the floors, I think, is really important when you're, you're implementing kind of a visitor tracking, monitor, journey experience uh, management solution. The, the second thing that I would say 
um, from a technology perspective, and not really a technology perspective, I would say from really just a, a leadership perspective, is data. You know, the more that we are able to understand um, the kind of needs and desires and expectations for uh, for the journey through the museum that our visitors have, um, the, the more effective we'll be able to help craft what that experience is going to be. Um, and that's not just capacity data. As we mentioned, it's, it's, it's CRM data. Um, why are you in the Washington, D.C. area? Are you going to other museums? What would you like to see from here? Where have you visited before? It's um, some of the tourism data, what's happening in the vicinity around the museum on it at any given point that may be of use or interest to our visitors, um, something as, as mundane, but that can be as impactful as weather. Herman mentioned, you know, people are often traveling across the country and sometimes across the world to come visit us. So the more that we are able to proactively share with them um, what to expect when they arrive, I think the the better that experience will be. So I think for from my perspective, really having a data rich experience, a data rich um, environment with which or by which we can help craft and drive what the visitor experience is going to be. You know, the more effective we're going to enable our visitors to enjoy their time in the museum. And then again, for the technology implementation piece. Really, when I say walk the museum, what I really mean is really understand the kind of uh, business processes, for lack of a better term, that we are trying to affect change in. Not in uh, Namak, but I've seen just in, in, in prior places where I've been, you know, the technology solution sometimes is agnostic and it, and it works, but if it's not really meeting the business outcomes, then it's not going to be effective. And what that means really for um, for this particular purpose, where we're talking about capacity management specifically and visitor experience in general, you know, your IT um, leader and your IT team really needs to understand that business environment, the museum environment, and the expectations that the museum has for what they want the visitor experience to be before you start implementing, you know, one piece of technology. You need to know what you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. I think Deanna hit one of the very critical pieces. It's that walking the floor and making sure that there are multiple departments present. Um, the relationship between visitor services and the IT team has been invaluable as we've kind of journeyed together in this reopening. Again, from the visitor services perspective, one of the things that Namak did, which that was brilliant, um, was we understood where our, maxim, our new maximum capacity would be in the post-COVID world. Um, but we did not open day one with that new capacity limit. You know, we slowly worked our way up to that maximum capacity figure over the first three weeks of opening. And what that allowed us to do was to test the systems and the protocols that we had in place. And it also allowed the frontline visitor team to become comfortable with those new policies, those new protocols. And then also making sure that we had our team in a space where they were comfortable sharing insights or tweaks or adjustments that needed to be made. And during that same period of time, I was able to very work closely with the IT team as we tested a lot of the new platforms that were in place, right? Because, you know, I think as Diana says so beautifully, 
having them in place is one thing, but making sure that they serve a true um, business function is critical. And so getting to a place where you can trust the the data and the insight that you're getting from your platforms um, is critical. And that comes from spending that time with the systems, walking in the building and kind of collectively looking at the data that's coming back. I think aside from that, um, specifically related to the platforms, you know, as Deanna mentioned, we do use eTicks um, for our ticketing, but the the visitor feedback form giving us some insight into how much time visitors are spending in the building, like understanding that dwell time uh, is critical to the process. Having some insight into our uh, hour by hour breakdown of anticipated visitor demand is also important. Um, and what I mean by that is if we're in a space where um, we've reached capacity on our lower level, right? Um, in our history gallery space, knowing that it's the middle of the day, it's 12 o'clock and we are about to see, you know, a rush of visitors or a, a new wave of visitors in the next hour um, helps my team make decisions about redirecting visitor flow. So instead of recommending a visitor start their journey on C3 in the history galleries, you know, with the slave ships, um, we're going to redirect them up to our upper levels, right? Um, so they can start their journey with the Parliament Funk's uh, spaceship, the mothership that's on the fourth floor of the museum, and making sure that the visitor services team is informed about the exhibition offerings on each of the levels ensures that they're able to kind of communicate that to visitors, right? Because again, all of the experiences in the mock are unique and special in their own way. And although, you know, the history gallery is the preferred starting point, visitors can still have an impactful visit if they have to start their journey um, on the top floor because of safety related reasons. And then that's where having, you know, the footfall counters installed on each floor has been invaluable because you know, I can look on a dashboard and see, okay, we're close to capacity in the lower levels. Let's start to redirect visitors to the upper floors. I think what I'm excited about is the insights that we'll get from the Altum system once that comes online um, and being able to more closely kind of track visitor journey through the museum. I think what I envision is getting to a place where we could kind of proactively recommend visitor tracks through the um, through the exhibit, um, if we are at this place now in a post-COVID world where we're making a lot of these visitor flow decisions um, for safety-related reasons, I would love to see us get to a place where you know we we have pre-built experiences around these these paths that we need visitors to take. And so, like quite frankly, what I mean by that is the history gallery visitor path is defined because that's a one-way directional gallery. But, you know, routinely, we do need visitors to start their journey on the upper levels, again, just for safety reasons. But that I would love to see kind of a, a almost a curated recommended path for the instant for a visitor coming in. Right. And that's something that we could offer to them, even in a pre journey part of the day. What that will look like is the insights tell us that routinely close to two o'clock, like we can anticipate slowdowns on the lower levels. And so if a visitor is on our site and they book a two o'clock time slot, we could offer, proactively offer them that journey um, experience through the museum where, you know, the recommended experiences or exhibitions that we have on the list are all in the upstairs galleries. And having the technology in place will allow us to 
um, make sure that we're we're offering these unique visitor experiences that are also rooted in you know their safety during their visit to the museum. I love the way that you're looking at at both that sort of safety and happiness and bringing together insights across such a significant number of data sources that you're bringing together to get that full picture of your visitor experience and a great addition to that with your surveys to get an idea of their reflections and their feedback. And I think especially because how visitors feel about their experience at the moment is so closely related to that topic of capacity too. I think we could do a whole nother session on um, the experience side of insights as well. That's why Deanna's team is so invaluable. Herman is so brilliant. I mean, I could, I'm learning every time I listen to him talk, but to be able to even um, simulate these curated experience before even providing that to the public, I think is it's very next level, but I absolutely would love to be working with you on something like that. So once we have data from, you know, ETEX and Sensors and Altum and all these tools to really be able to do your what if analysis, if I am crowded at 2.30, what are some other journeys through the museum that we want to pursue? We'll, we'll, we'll need to work together on that. <laughs> that sounds like a challenge for the year ahead. Uh, Deanna, your your team have done such an incredible job of instrumenting the museum for data with hardware and then integrating everything behind the scenes so that we can quickly get a data and insight from them for the team to access and report on. Um, you've got a lot of sensors in that building to gather information on visitor flow, and I'm aware that installing uh, hardware is always a, a finicky business. Um, we've had some examples in London where museums have had significant undercounts due to like a blown device or even a light bulb outage um, casting a shadow on a spot where where that count was happening. What are some of the, the gotchas to watch out for on that front that you've found? Oh, wow. That's a, a really good question. Um, one potential gotcha, even before we get to counting, Herman alluded to it a bit where he talked about having a good partnership between visitor services and IT. I would add that when we were looking to expand the footprint for the sensors cameras, um, we, we really needed to bring in our exhibition team um, because one thing, and I frankly had not really thought this through from an IT perspective, my focus on the, the cameras and similarly with the wireless access points for on the Wi-Fi insights was really around coverage, right? So I wanted to make sure that the cameras would be placed optimally so that we could pick up, you know, the sort of digital images of people coming into or leaving a particular gallery space. And that's great. Our exhibition team kind of called timeout for a moment and said, we need to make sure that wherever we are placing, you know, cameras or wires or anything that may even potentially be visible to the public, that it doesn't disrupt the visitor's experience of, 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 of viewing that exhibition. So we walked the floors with, with Herman's team, my team, um, a facilities team and exhibitions to make sure that where things were currently placed and where they were going to re be repl uh, be placed were um, placed in such a way that they weren't obtrusive, that they weren't intrusive, and that they would not disrupt the, the visitor's viewing experience. Um, and so that was a really uh, great learning point for me, which is... Um, 
you know, thinking about the technology backend is is critical to make sure that things work. But we also, um, in addition to meeting the business need, as Herman mentioned, we've also have to make sure that we are aligned aesthetically with the intent of a particular gallery. So that's, I think that's super, that's very critical because quite frankly, if, if I had people counters that worked just a hundred percent effectiveness, but they disrupt the visitor experience, then, you know, my solution may have been successful, but the intent and the goal of my solution, you know, will have failed. So that's, that's one gotcha that we, we didn't, go there. We were able to catch it, but it's something to really look out for. And then the second big thing that I would say is, is really, um, these systems are, they, the systems need time to learn and calibrate and validate the movement of actual people through the museum. So in the absence of having, you know, a large team of 50 to a hundred folks who can walk through various gallery spaces and test in real time, um, you are always going to have to give yourself, you know, some weeks of having, um, you know, an, an enhanced or an expanded capacity of visitors to really validate, you know, that your people counters or that your Wi-Fi insights are working as intended. And one thing that um, when we have run into some challenges there, and one thing that Herman's team has done really is it's old school. Let's go back to the clickers and to see if are our manual counts, you know, within kind of tolerance with the um, sensors, you know, automated counters, and then really refine um, the placement of cameras and uh, and the counting of the technology solution so that you are, you know, you have a high confidence level that it's really mimicking, you know, the, the actual footfall and traffic through the, through the space. So give yourself, give yourself time and work in, and work with, um, in an integrated team format, get everyone who needs to be involved in managing that experience in the implementation of whatever technology you're going to put in place. Mm. And uh, we always find it's really important to uh, integrity test those hardware counters every quarter or so too. So I imagine you've got probably a maintenance plan around that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll be looking to do that by um, January, I believe. Uh, We will have had this in place um, for about four months at that point. And there are two things that we, one thing that we know we want to do are some upgrades on some legacy cameras that were there, that would be another lessons learned is I um, would not recommend necessarily having um, sort of a hybrid set of technology if you can really standardize along one camera set, just so that the integrity of the data that you're getting out of them, you know, will be consistent. Um, So we are planning some upgrades for some legacy cameras, and then we would do more of an integrity test of the data at that point. The only thing I would add, which I've probably said before, but it's worth reemphasizing, is partnership, partnership, partnership. The more that visitor services is supported with with all of the, the partners within a museum and given the tools and the data that they need to be successful, then the more successful the, the museum is going to be at managing um, you know, visitor capacity. And to my earlier point about bringing in other types of data that also means that managing the visitor experiences is an, uh, an enterprise-wide um, you know, endeavor, and it takes enterprise-wide commitment for everyone who has 
you know, a lever to pull a, a, throughout the uh, visitor experience, um, you know, just to make sure that everyone's engaged and committed. Thank you so much um, to you both for taking the time out um, as at such a busy time for sharing this expertise and some really, really great tips and tricks there for everyone in the industry. Um, and for more on capacity management uh, for listeners out there and uh, insights uh, on paper, places people love go to www.dexivit.com for more thank you so much Herman and Deanna well thank you for having me well, thank you